Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is Shattered Lives, an Irish Daily Star podcast. I'm Paul Healy. The murder of Rachel Callaly is perhaps one of the most infamous crimes in recent Irish history. On the morning of October 4th, 2004, the innocent mother of two was brutally bludgeoned to death in her home in Knoll County, Dublin, by her husband, Joe O'Reilly. O'Reilly made every attempt to try and cover up the murder, blaming a burglar, making up alibis and claiming he was at work at the time it occurred. But eventually the evil killer was caught up in his own web of lies and he was jailed for life in 2007. Rachel's parents, Jim and Rose Callaly, have fought for the last 14 years to keep Joe, who refuses to admit his crime, behind bars. Jim and Rose sat down with us for this podcast to speak about that campaign and the horrific loss of their daughter, Rachel. Can you take us back to October 4th, 2004, and the first time you you got that phone call, Rose, that or that 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 feeling that you had to go over to the house that day in Knoll. I just had a feeling, but there was something different in the kitchen to what it always was. But I looked to my right to go in, and I kept calling Rachel. And when I looked, you know, to my right, the drawers, a few drawers had been taken out, and the stuff scattered around the floor, and that didn't look authentic either. I thought to myself, that looks odd. But it was only afterwards I realised the curtains in the kitchen had been drawn. Never had Rachel, I don't think she ever even at night time would draw those curtains. They were always open, but the curtains were drawn and um, the kitchen was sort of a few things pulled around and as well as that, I could hear the wa- the washing machine. I thought she was in the utility room and I looked in and I distinctly always remember the machine was on. But there was nobody in there and I kept calling her and I wasn't frightened or anything at this stage, although there was something wasn't right with me. But when I got into the lounges to the left, the first room, and I looked in there and there was a corner press in the corner and all the videos and that were pulled out and scattered around the the floor and then I start to get I thought there was somebody after breaking in I start to get a bit anxious and I walked up 
past that room and the next room would have been the bathroom on the right hand side and I looked in there and there was nothing there and then I walked to the next door on the right which was the boys the two little boys room and no there was nothing there so I turned back down and the next room would have been on my right coming back so it was the left of that corridor was Rachel's room the first one was and um if I had have looked even that way, and I, because it was almost opposite the bathroom door, but I was just going on my way and I wasn't watching, you know, on the, the other door. But when I got to the door, it was wide open and Rachel was on the floor. And the, I just, it was just unbelievable. And when I saw her, I knew amid, first of all, very, very soon when I saw her, I knelt down beside her and I thought maybe she'd fallen or anything, but she did, I knew and she was marble cold. I knew she was dead. And I, I can't remember how long I knelt beside her, but I always remember, I'll never forget kneeling beside her in the room and it just felt I can't explain the words. It was desolate. And it really had a desolate feeling about it. That image is still crystal clear in your mind to this day, is it? Oh, yeah. I'll never forget it. And I'll never forget the feeling as I knew. I just felt that I was the only person alive in the world. I felt Rachel and I, there was nobody else in the world. It was, I'll never forget it. And I can't remember, I just was afraid to touch her and it's part of me from the very beginning from the time I saw her I kept saying to myself you're not supposed to touch you know you're not supposed you know don't touch anything and which I didn't I just kept rubbing her arm and I was talking to her and I, I don't know how long I knelt there and I just kept talking to Rachel and then I thought to myself I better get up and try and get help and I ran down to the kitchen and she had got a new landline with ones you can lift the phone out and not, but I didn't know how to use it. So I lifted up the phone and I was ringing. I was trying to ring 999 and I kept ringing and I couldn't get through to anybody. And eventually, I don't know what way I was ringing, but this, I got through to somebody, whether it was the police or what, I don't know. To this day, I don't know. And um, I kept saying, please, will you, will you help us? I said, I think my daughters have to be murdered. I think I, and he kept saying, who is that? You know, real as, as if it was a prank. And I kept saying, please, would you, would you just get somebody out here? And he said, where is it? And I said, it's in the, trying to tell him as best I could. So, he hung up and I can't remember even now what he said or who he was, but I had told him, you know, that I thought Rachel had been murdered and he probably rang the police. I think my sons rang the police after, because after that then I rang Declan and I think I, I could have rang Declan on my own mobile and... um when Declan came on, I remember he was real cheery. I'll always remember that. And he said, well, um, 
did you contact, is Rachel back or did you contact Rachel? And I, I didn't know what way to say it to him. And I said, no, I said, um, Rachel didn't. I said, Rachel has after been murdered, Declan. And of course, Declan, God love him, went, he kept saying, oh, no, ma'am, you know. And then I could hear him saying to Jim and Paul, and like they were so upset. All right, take, take your time. But and anyhow, they came, he, they, Jim came on and I just said to him, look, Jim, I said, I think Rachel's after been murdered. I said, and they said, we're on our way out. So I remember the next one to come was um, the f- girl, the first girl that lives up the road. I can't remember her name now. And she told me after, she said, I could hear you screaming from the top, you know, from up where she lives. She, she said, I could hear. I, I was not aware that I was even able to say anything. I didn't realise I was screaming. She said, I could hear you, she said. Oh, she said, I knew there was something wrong. And it was like an, an out-of-body experience for you, was it? Just totally... Oh, dreadful. It's, it's like surreal. You know, you're there, but it's like happening to somebody else. It felt as if I was just somebody else looking on. At that point, when did when did Jim find out? When did Jim get the phone? Can you remember when you got the phone call, Jim, or when you first heard? When I first heard, yeah, I was with the lads here in the house. And the Paul said, we'll go straight out now. So Declan, Paul and myself got in the car. I think Travis got into uh, Was Anthony with us, Rose? Anthony probably, he probably was. was, Jim. So we went straight yeah. out and we, we, we didn't know what to expect, you know. Yeah. We didn't talk much. We were saying, God, you know, we'd wonder what's wrong and all. But we got to the house fairly quick and um, <clears throat> God, it was an awful shock. When I went to go in, there was a lady guarded there and she said to me, um, you'd be better not going in there. And I said, why? And she said, well, I'm just saying to you, don't. Don't go in. So I didn't go in. She knew it. Um, so I was standing outside, I think, most of the time. And then, as far as I remember, there was two guards out on the road. And they were sort of, I think they might have been stopping traffic and that. No, they stopped just from going in, Jimmy. Yeah. Weren't well, the guard, it was a lady guard that stopped me. Or I quite remember that. But anyway, um, from then it was sort of, Closed in, it was a murder scene. And then I remember how I remember this is that when we went to come back, I was going to get into the car, and the man said, You can't shift them cars. He said, There's no way you can move them cars now. So I don't know how I got home. Um, but we had to leave the cars that were there. there. And uh, as, as Rose mentioned, Joe showed up. Um, can you remember? His reaction when it was put to him, look, your wife is 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 dead. In the driveway, he just took off and he, he flew into the house and he went down to the bedroom and I followed him. And I always remember he looked down at Rachel and he kept doing this first of all. And he said, 
which struck me as bizarre. He said, Jesus, Rachel, what did you do? And I kept thinking to myself, what does he mean? Rachel is dead. She, like, obviously, she didn't kill herself. As if, like, she was the cause of it. And then um, Jackie, that's the girl, that's the nurse. Jackie came in then and Jackie tried to, but she knew, Jackie said to him, it's no use, she said, she's well gone. And um, he just, like, was very nonchalant. Now, he, I can't... He things around, didn't he? Well, when when he came in first, that's right, he knelt down and started, there were books and that around, you know, in the bedroom, and he started throwing them around. Now, it, they weren't in the way of where Rachel was lying, but he, he just kept, I suppose it was something for him to do. Or whatever, I don't know, but, but he, he just... He was upset in the scene in the order. But it was just... When you look back at that now, both of you, you know, I mean, obviously it was a whirlwind moment. It was something you can't imagine yeah. that would ever happen, but that immediately struck out in your mind as strange, did it? Just yeah. unusual. Yeah. And I remember, I don't. I think it was that night when the two detectives came down to have a talk like we all had to be fingerprinted and everything and they were asking me the very same um what happened what was the first thing and everything and I kept saying and like when I'd come to that I'd say to them like you know why would you say and they said well you tell us you know and it was only then as I started to pro you know process the thing I thought to myself you know that was the most bizarre way of going on for her husband. As I said, I was waiting on him to lift Rachel up and, you know, to hold her and everything. But there was absolutely none of that. I think the man up the road would have showed more. Yeah, I was just wondering, did he show any emotion? Did he cry? None did he... whatsoever. No, no. The only time he was, you know, he put his his two hands, I remember, up to his head. And that's when he said... You know, Rachel, you know, what did you do? And as we know, uh, it, there was a, a, a encounter that he had with a Garda as well in the house where he he kind of said, oh, I'm after ruining it now for you because he touched the book. That's right. You know, yeah. again. A, I hope I didn't ruin it. Yeah. yeah. Again, an unusual thing. He was already starting to uh, cover yeah. cover his tracks even in, oh, yeah. in that moment. Yeah. 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 Oh, I think I think it was very well thought out beforehand, to be honest with you. We, we'll fast forward a little bit because there's a lot to, I want to cover, which is, but eventually it, 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 you were looking for answers and you were appealing for information. And there was that infamous appearance on The Late Late Show. And your yourselves went on and you were on with Pat Kenny and Joe was on with you. And this was the, this was the first time that you, a flag was raised in your mind that you suspected that he was yeah. the person responsible. Yeah. Why was that? Oh, from the very beginning. Really from the very beginning, I was convinced. By the time we went on the Late Late Show, I was never sure, you know, that I couldn't look at him. You know, I remember when we were on the Late Late, it took me all my time to, you know, sit there beside him and all because I knew he had done it. Mm. Did you feel that way, Jim, at that point? I didn't really, no. I was still wondering, you know, was there a break-in? 
But then after talking to the detectives and all, they said there's no one out there that, you know, we'd suspect. We've interviewed everybody that we thought and all. And then, then it sort of dawned on me. And then I was looking at him a lot of the time. And he was out in the garden and he was jumping around with the kids and all that. And it didn't look like any fella that was grieving at all. You know, he was very strange the way he carried on. And that sort of added to it that I was sort of building up my mind. It's him, you know. And and another bizarre incident that, that showed his behaviour was only a couple of days after the murder, he invited you guys over to the house. And and what happened then? His his behaviour was, was, was exceptionally strange that day. Well, yeah, he said, um, would we like to go down and visit the house that he had been there? previously and that um he got a great sense of relief um and maybe it would affect us the same and this was on this was only about a week later wasn't it yeah yeah that's right so we went down and um was it a priest blessed the house or something i don't remember or but someone came in and he found it a great house. i think it could have been a priest i'm not uh, sure well, joe said I'm he found for- it was great easement of his mind and that and we might experience the same but then he started doing weird things he picked up the phone and he said do you want to hear these messages and it was him ringing back to the house wondering where Rachel was and I think he must have had all these plans so I was say, well you don't think of me done it but he and um, it's when you think back and you say well, you know why would he do that and why would he do this but um but then he 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 brought you to the room where she was murdered, and he oh, yeah, he yeah. he act he started to act out what he thought might have happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and what the what the murderer done, and he said at one stage. Now, when we went into the bedroom with him first, and he was going through all this, I was so shocked, and so was Jim. I sort of lost track of what he was saying. I just it was bizarre, and he he kept. I was sort of couldn't. Bear listening to him. He and he, the he, he went through the whole thing and Paul, my son Paul and Denise, his wife, was with us. And he said, and then he said, he went over, referring to the murderer, he went over to the bathroom and Paul and Denise followed him. We sort of were, I couldn't even hear, take in what he was saying. And it was Paul told us after, you know, that night, see, what did you think of you know, apparently when he got to the bathroom, he said, when he got here, he could hear, um, he oh, could God. hear Rachel. He knew she wasn't dead and he went back and, and finished her off. Bizarre. And that, that basically was true. Like after the inquest and all, she hadn't died, you know, she hadn't died first. So like that was bizarre. So he absolutely bizarre. He was saying things that only the murderer could have known. Oh yeah, positively. But even up to after that visit went on, you know, after we came home from the house and all, Jim didn't like I was getting more and more convinced. And Jim wouldn't even I when we came home, I said, Jim, I said, I'm convinced, I said, and he got very, very upset. He kept saying, please, Rose, don't say that. He 
No way, he said, could he have done it, he I'm said. I'm not saying that he didn't do it, but I found it very hard to take it in. That knowing, knowing the assailant, that he'd do it. When you know someone, I didn't know him that well, but you can't imagine someone you know with more than your daughter. And I found that hard to take in. I didn't rule them out, but I found it very hard. I didn't want to think like that. Yeah, but when you when you when you look back at it, Jim, like I, I think you I think you've said this before that when he was, let's say, reenacting what he thought had happened, you you said that his eyes were 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 popping out that he was that he was very uh, energetic and erratic in his behaviour. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. Oh, he, he was acting very strange. You know, I didn't, another friend of mine that came down one day to see us, Joe was here, and um, he said to me after, he said, he was acting very strange, mm. he said, you know, the things he said and the things he'd done. And then, you see, he used to come down here and he'd have a meal with us and all. He'd sit at the table with us and he'd say, you know, this is terrible and how could anyone do that and all. Um, he... Uh, it's hard to believe that um, he could act out these things, but I think they're all pre-planned. And again, then his head was ready for it. Yeah, um, but, I'm just um, wondering, like when you when you look back at that now, like you know, you could look you could yeah. look at it one way and say he was trying to cover his tracks, but there must have been yeah. was he trying to was he getting some sort of kind of sick pleasure out of because he he he, he, so. he, he he seemed to. Uh, to go to great lengths to describe to your to you know your your the parents of of, of his wife what happened to her. Yeah. 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 He, um, I I honestly believe he's a psychopath, you know, and that's where he gets his kicks out of. Um, when he was down reenacting the murder, he was saying, "Well, he must have hit her like this, and he hit her like that." And look at the splashes on the seal, and, and he was looking at our faces. And I'd say our faces were draining. And I think he was getting a kick out of that. You know, when when I look back, and yeah, how could you go through all that? And uh, it's unbelievable that he reenacted the murder in front of our father and mother, you know. Well, one of our friends came down. It was probably two days after the murder, and they were out in the kitchen. And I remember he went home to his wife, who's another friend of ours, and he said, your man done it, he said. It was her husband, he said, committed that murder. And she said she was shocked. She said, don't say that, she said. Don't, I hope you didn't say that to Jim or Rose, she said. But he was convinced from the beginning. He he was going on that, that odd and uh, you know, it it took some time to prove that uh, the the guards investigated for 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 it, it for many years, and it eventually came to trial in two thousand and seven, and he was and he and he was convicted of the murder. But as we now know, it was his phone records and and many of his alibis and stuff that that ended up convict convicting yeah, him. Exactly. So yeah. Joe, we won't need to go into the whole thing because. There's a lot, but but as we know, Joe said that he went to work and he said he, that he was at work when it happened. But the phone record showed that he would that his mobile phone pinged off a tower that showed that he was actually in the vicinity of the house mm-hmm. at the time of the murder. Yeah, 
and this mm. this ended up being what convicted him. Um, was it was it was it shocking to you is that in the end there was very little evidence, physical DNA and all that, and, and that this is what it came down to 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 to, to convict him. Unfortunately. Well, it does, but I was eternally grateful to the technology that did get him because I know how hard it is for them to really, like we didn't realise then how hard it is really to get a conviction for murder. But thank God, you know, it all sort of panned out. But some of the stuff that came out during the trial, like when we read some of those emails that he had been sending in between. Now, the police, had, they can tell you a certain amount, but they don't can't tell you that much. He had emailed his, his sister when he was talking about the marriage and what he really and what he and what he really thought of. And of to his girlfriend. Yeah. Like it was just. I'll never forget that when I heard, you know, those emails. Now, they had said to us, you know, be prepared, you know, it'll be tough on you today. But I genuinely hadn't a clue what that was one of the, the parts of it, too, that really distressed us terribly when we heard, you know, and the lies he, he was saying in them. Mm. But he told he told the guards that. Um, that that he eventually admitted that he was having an affair with Nikki Pelly, and you know obviously that was the one of the prime motivations for for the murder. But it, these emails that you're referring to, he tried to allege that Rachel was somehow uh, physically abusing her children or whatever, and saying all of these un- unproven things. And, oh, I know. Um, yeah, he was trying to blacken her character, really, wasn't he? Mm. Oh yes, yeah. No, and I, it, I was very, very upset at her. Like, um, Nikki Pelly hadn't ever met, spoken to Rachel even. She just knew what Joe was telling her, and like the responses she was making to him against Rachel in the emails, I just felt sick. But when the police told us coming up to the trial, they said she's going to go, she's be a witness for the prosecution. Mm. I thought to myself, I couldn't believe that. And I thought to myself, well, fair play to her. She could have been led astray. Like I know know how manipulative he is and that. And I really Mm. thought to myself, well, maybe she's trying to do what she can. But the police said she she's agreed she'll she'll she probably now, looking on it afterwards, she probably had to go. There was some reason why she had to go for them, but she promised them, he said to us, that she promised she'll tell the truth, whatever it is she's going to tell the truth. And I'll always remember when she was walking up to get on the stand at the trial, I really felt very, very sorry for her and very grateful to her until she opened her mouth. Mm. And then my sorrow blew to the wind. I just felt to myself she just, she forgot everything. She was posed, she was asked, she couldn't remember anything that would have been of any help at all. And she stood by his side for ever since and been visiting him in prison ever since. But one thing she, one thing she did say on the witness stand she did um, give evidence for was Joe's real attitude 
towards Rachel. And there was a lot of evidence that Joe hated your daughter and and that he really, really oh, yeah. didn't want her around. There was plenty of ev- plenty of his own words yeah. uh, to prove that. Yeah. And and we realised, particularly me and our Anne, he, like the lies he told in, and he, every, all the whole family come since we were married, since they were married with their children and their cousins. And this house used to be full every Christmas morning and they'd all exchange presents and everything. And I remember in, in one of his emails to his mistress, he said, um, I didn't want, um, my kids, he said, they'd get a tin whistle while everyone else got, and I can't remember what he said, you know, something ten times, which was so hurtful. Like, the children all got equal presents, like there was nobody ever handed a tin whistle here. But he went out of his way to paint, you know, I can't remember even half the things he said about me and I realised then what he thought of me and Anne. And he didn't really know, like what Jim said, we never really got to know him. But he just, whatever it was about the women in this family, he just, you know, he hadn't a good word to say for us. He had utter contempt for, for Rachel in particular and he called her all sorts of names which we won't repeat. But Oh, it was dreadful. Absolutely. And the awful, sorrowful part of it was she absolutely was mad about him. And I know now, reason tells me, coming up to before the murder, she had to have known. She, you know, I know things, listening to those emails and everything, she had to have known, you know, there was a problem. And I don't know whether she knew about Pelly or what but God help her until it wouldn't have been too long before she really no matter even if we'd go shopping and all she she always I don't think she ever went home without something for him and like she was always singing his praises wasn't she Jim yeah but looking back now and he was planning this for quite a while yeah. because he got he, he got his mother to report her that she wasn't a fit person to rear the two boys. And they came down and interviewed her and they could find nothing wrong. And the only complaint he had or his mother had was that she used to shout at the children. And uh, But he, what he said then later was that he didn't want to be a Saturday morning um, or McDonald's father, you know. So, like, he was covered in these tracks before they happened. It was about the kids, wasn't it? I mean, he, he wanted the full, he, he wanted to leave Rachel and he wanted custody of the kids, yeah. He wanted custody of the kids, you see. Yeah, mm. well, he wanted their all. He wanted the house, the custody of the kids and all. He didn't want to lose anything. But in his ignorance and stupidity, he lost it all, you know, and he affected everyone's lives, you know, the new Rachel and all, and his own family as well. One thing I want to mention, because it was one of the things that, that helped convict him, 
Um, but it was a very it was a very painful thing for you guys. Um, there, Rachel had to be exhumed, and um, this is be this is because uh, some letters were written and 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 placed in the coffin uh, by by every member of the family, including Joe. And there was a feeling that perhaps Joe had written something on this note that could be of evidential value. Can you talk to me about that and, and what that note said? Well, we all just put little notes in the coffin and I remember saying to him, would you like to write something? And he wasn't overly enthusiastic, but I suppose he felt, well, I can't not if everyone else is. But I can't remember word for word what he wrote down, but the essence of it that stuck with us was... At the end of it, he said, only you, I'm sorry, he said to her, I'm sorry, Rachel. And um, I think he said, only you and I know. Only you and I know. And the reason. I, I, have, I, have, I, have, I have it paraphrased here. He said that the hardest thing, um, that this is the hardest letter I've ever had to write for reasons only you and I know. And he also said, Rachel, forgive me. I mean, I mean, you know, uh, what else could it mean? You know, when when you when did you first learn about that letter? Did the guards tell you what it said or when did you first find out about what the contents of that letter? Oh, yeah. After after the coffin was exhumed. But as well as that, another bizarre thing was he put flowers on her grave. You know, there's a white flowers from her, from him. And there was a little white card on it. And the only words on that card was from Joe. It didn't even say to Rachel or love or anything. From Joe was all that was on that no, card. See you later, wasn't it? Something brief anyway. Nothing Nothing loving, nothing me meaningful. No, no. 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 Um, here we are now, uh, uh, fourteen years on. He's if, since his imprisonment, um, and there have been multiple occasions in which he has attempted to gain freedom, and that's because he he maintains that he's innocent. He has never admitted to the murder. How, just just can I talk about that briefly? How painful is it that this man has has never admitted to murdering your daughter? Well, to me, it would mean a, a meant. I don't know about now even, but it would have meant an awful lot had he have even said, I'm sorry. It, it didn't matter. Jim said he'd say, and I know he, what he says is true. He'd say he's sorry just to get out. And, you know, that would be, he said, and I know he wouldn't have meant it. But what I really meant was I would have loved him to say it and mean it. To say I'm sorry. Well, the reason I think he wouldn't say he murdered Rachel was he'd be telling his um, two children that he murdered our mother. And he, I don't think he wanted to admit that, you know. It'd be a different light if they looked at him, well, he's the man that killed my mother, you know. But he wouldn't admit that. Once you knew it was him, Jim, that murdered your daughter, you felt very strongly about it that... that you wanted everybody to know that this man killed your daughter. And I, I believe that you, you, even before he was convicted, am I right, that you, you wanted to put the word mur murdered on your daughter's grave. Why? why did, tell, yeah. us a, t tell us about that. 
how he did do that and I sort of didn't want him to but he felt strongly enough and that is on it murdered is on yeah. the, the grave well it didn't say who murdered her but said Rachel um, you know murdered such a date but it's better to tell the truth I think there's no good covering up and the the, the stone mate the stonemason said to me, are you sure you want this on that one? Yeah, I said yes. But uh, everyone will know that she was murdered. But it was in the papers for weeks, the soil and everything. Everybody knew her, even those that never met her. And um, there was no good in me covering up anything. So I said, no, put down, she was murdered. And um, he said, well, you don't want to change your mind. I said, never. Well, I tell you, Paul, he he ruined more than his own family. He ruined our family because it's never been the same since. Like I've off, I realise now it can either bring you closer together or, and it didn't do that with us, to be honest with you. He absolutely ruined our lives. And and that's just one example of where you you wanted to I guess depict that you know, like Rachel didn't just die she her life was taken from her it was stolen from her by yeah by this person yeah exactly yeah 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 and like what it Rachel was I what used to get to me what she was worth so much more than he would ever amount to like she could have done you know, so much in her life. And to think he decided, you know, that he was going to end that life. She it's was it's very, very hard to to accept that, you she know. Really and like she talented. was such a, a good person and she would have been an asset to the world, really, whereas he's useless, you know. But it's it's happened and... And and I know I know you often think about that, Rose. You've said it to me many times, and and Jim as well. Um, that you think about the life that that she could have had and that she could have lived. Yeah. Oh, I always think, still think mm. about it. Mm. You know, you you never forget. You know, you learn how to deal with it, but it doesn't really get any easier, Paul. You know, it's it's just a different life completely. Well, it was tough, tough on our sister Anne. And our, our Anne, yeah. And Anne had problems like, and um, she died from cancer, went through her. And there was a name on the cancer, I can't think of it now. And I asked the doctor that I was talking to one time, what would bring that on? And he said, stress. And it was only a few short years after that. And died from the stress of losing her sister. And she lived in fear that if your man ever got out, the same could happen to her. So I started, I started holding responsible for me two daughters passing away. Well, I remember after Rachel died, um, Anne had her own place up in Santry. And I remember she loved it now. Rachel had moved down to the Knoll and Anne got her house around the same time. And I remember Anne, like they would have been, weren't really that close 
for years, but when Rachel got married and she had the children and all, they got a lot closer, you know, than they ever had been. And it would, like, when they lived, before Rachel moved to the Knoll, she lived up in Woodlawn, fairly <coughs> near to what, where Anne had been living. And they got really close, you know, in that short time. And I remember Anne loved where she was living. And she used to ring, she'd, she'd say, Dad, I can't believe, you know, I, I'm living here and I own this place and all. She loved it. And of, about a year maybe before Rachel died, or two years. And then as soon as Rachel was murdered, our Anne used to arrive at the door out there at three o'clock, four o'clock and everything in the morning. She was petrified absolutely petrified and eventually you know she came down and of course she she um when she went on her um treatment her treatment she came down to live here with us but i i know he took the joy out of that place and she was afraid of him yeah i was just going to ask you that like as as jim mentioned she she was in fear of him and fear of him getting out she was afraid you know that he was going to uh, and then when she'd come down in the car i used to be afraid of her coming out in the middle of the night you know that anybody could attack her you know that I used to be very nervous of her living up there. And before that, like, we were all so happy for her, you know, that he he took that away from her as well. She never rested. She always thought she heard noises and someone trying to get in and that. So she, she could never relax or enjoy the place. She would come down here at all hours in the morning. Um, it was terrible, sad to see her the way she went. So the, the last years of of Anne's life were, were, were spent in grief over her sister and, and. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember he was only, he was a few months in jail. He wasn't that long in jail when she was diagnosed, you know, and she's, so that was really the end of her life because she had a battle from then. She fought it for two and a half years and eventually God love her. She, you know, wasn't to be. So that's why Jim always said he blamed him over it. Now, I don't know. But she was perfect up to then. I got a shock when I asked. I said, what would bring on? I can't think of the name of the cancer. It was an odd mate. And he said to me, oh, that's from stress. Now, we didn't know the history of her. So, um, you know, I got a shock. I can't imagine, like, if you've lost your your first daughter and then you lose another one, just... What is that like, that time like to, you know, you're already grieving and then to lose another daughter? Yeah, oh, it's just unbelievable. And the thing about when when Rachel died first, I remember Anne was a great consolation to me. Like every, you know, we're very close after that. Like she was my rock after it. So when Anne died, I just... It was like the world just falling in on top of my head. I didn't want to live, Paul. I really didn't. I'd had enough of life. What keeps you going? I tell you what really kept me on the straight and narrow is my grandchildren. Like, in the beginning, you know, they definitely, like the... 
the kids would come up here and I saw a lot of them when they were very small and they kept me going, mm-hmm. you know, but, and the, the lads too, but they suffered too in their yeah, own way. The two, you know, the three lads and the youngest fellow, Tony, he was very close to Joe and it took so much out of him, you know, after that murder. He couldn't believe that it was Joe done it. I remember when we had to tell him, the police said to us, don't tell him in the beginning because he was very, very close to him. (laughs) And... um, I remember when we did tell him, he took off and he ran out and we didn't know where he'd gone. And oh, he was re- because he was very young then. He would have been about what age was he, Jim? About seven, didn't he? Seven, eighteen. He maybe. used to go to the pictures with Joe. They used to go to a lot of films together. And they'd be talking about the films and that. And then, but then he said, I couldn't believe that he could have done it. He was it's very close. Imagine. He looked up to Joe, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, he did, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just want to talk about, because um, I'm conscious that some of this uh, podcast series, we're, we're talking a bit about the justice system. And, you know, we've just spoken about the fact that Joe was found guilty and it was a great moment. Um, it, he's got a form of justice. But as I mentioned, Joe went on to try and get himself out of prison multiple times. There were appeals that you had to go through. Um, there's the, there was the threat of a European appeal after he lost his appeals in his Supreme Court appeal. Just what is it like to go through that process of you've you've got some justice and now you've got to fight to try and keep this person in prison and to go through that for more for years and years to keep going through that process again and again? Well, it definitely takes it out of you. But in all honesty, I think we're so focused on doing everything we can, like Jim feels the same, that he won't get out if we can help it, you know, that, and I've often felt I don't want anybody in Ireland ever to forget what he done, you know, and it was a well-planned murder and she was blameless. She really was. He was had a mistress and it came out in the trial like he'd had two in between Pelly and the murder. He had two more. They two more witnesses, you know, that he'd had um, a, affairs with. So It was a woman noiser, you know. Yeah. So I'd say, you know, he would have went through the rest of his life, you know, like that, Philanthropy. he couldn't commit to, you know, stable life. I, as I say, we're speaking a little bit about the justice system, um, you know, and and I was one example that I mentioned was you have to constantly write to the parole board. The other thing is he gets multiple appeals, and you've mentioned that maybe that shouldn't be an option. But do you, do you do you feel at any point that the justice system lets you down or or lets victims? families down in any way in any way no well well, i do but i feel we did get justice but i think for loads of people who would be due as much justice as we got i think and they didn't get it or anything like it and i think if they were cruelly i think cruelly um 
treated by the justice system. And I sort of feel I can't believe that because the dogs in the streets knew Joe O'Reilly murdered Rachel. And I've seen things happening since. And you would be just as convinced. And the pe- those people, for one reason or another, did not get justice. I think it's weighed too much against, you know, the victim and the perpetrator is, you know, shown more due care or whatever way you'd like to put it. But I know there has been several cases since that I think the people were cruelly treated, like with the justice they got. It wouldn't have been justice. Well, I think the had a big burden on it, the publicity of Rachel's trial and the fact that she was a mother of two young children. All that came into it. And, you know, our picture was in every paper. But um, I think that weighed a lot against him, although he loved all that as far as I could see, and everyone said that. But um, it, I think it weighed against him to think that a young mother of two very young children could be murdered in her own home by her husband. You know, it was sort of, I'm not saying it was one of the first, but it was one of the early ones. And everyone was talking about it and everybody knew about it and all. And um, I think there would have been a rebellion yeah. if he got out. You, you, you mentioned the media coverage, you know, and uh, I think the, me- the, the media, you know, rightly or wrongly, some people feel they have issues with it and problems with it. But how how did you find... I never had an issue with it, Paul, because I realised things can be done behind the scenes and all, but if it wasn't in the media, people wouldn't know about it. So I felt as as long as the media mentioned Rachel's name, she couldn't be forgotten. So I welcomed anything that um, was going on in the media. It never sort of... I thought it was great. You know, like the interest that they showed and the the coverage they gave her, I thought it was brilliant. I wouldn't have any, you know, complaints with them. I it just kept her up there, you know, well, that the she police wouldn't. and the media are brilliant. Yeah. Well, I think, as you say, be, because he hasn't admitted it, but also maybe because the of the 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 fact that it's so infamous and people it, there would be very bad publicity if he got out any time soon. Yeah. But I suppose there's a there's a possibility that that day could come. Have you prepared yourself for that possibility? Obviously, years down the line, but the the potential possibility of him being released does that ever weigh on your mind? No. Jim only said to me the other day. We must have been talking about. He said to me, God, see all the same, it'd be terrible to think if he was out there walking around. That's only the other day. But I don't think of that. I, do, I sort of just try and put him out of my mind. You know, I just try and not think of him at all. I don't think he'll ever get out because I don't think he's capable of showing remorse. You know, I don't think he has that in him. Do you think life should mean life? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. well when they say it in a court... And the judge said, with no appeal, what's the point in them saying that if it doesn't mean it, you know? If I said something in court and then I said a few weeks after, I oh, know it didn't mean that. But when, when you hear the judge saying that, it was sort of a relief for me that day to say, I'm sent you to life. But life, 
doesn't mean what everybody thinks it is. And then to say with no parole, um, there were two things that were said that, um, you know, I think the law should look into that. Because he's had opportunities to get parole. Obviously, he's been denied them, but he's he's had opportunities to get parole. But I mean, oh, he had, yeah. Obviously, he's been he's been denied them, but even still, he had the he had the chance, and and will and will have the chance again very shortly, I believe. But they know they have a, a fellow like him, and maybe they had all this priority put him. I can't see him ever, you know, showing remorse. He just hasn't got that in him, you know. It's a. It's a question that it gets asked a lot, and and no one would expect you to have to forgive him. But is is there ever an opportunity that you think you would forgive him, or will you? You know, what do you feel about that? Well, people said to me, you know, about that, and I said, well, the ball is in his court. He never apologised to us for what he done. So, like, you know, he'd have to make the first move, and then I'd have to consider it. Well, I can't often, see that happening. I don't even think about it. I, I I try and not think about him even because you don't get any consolation thinking about him. I've often thought, because I know you're supposed to forgive and that would be the... And I start to think to myself, you know, I could say the words, but Paul, I, could, I didn't mean them. So whether it was <laughs> to try and... You know, it seems a contradiction. But when I say I said that to Jim, he nearly went mad. Well, he said I wouldn't even think of it. But I haven't thought about it for a long time. I would sort of wish I I was the better person that I could. But yeah, I don't think anyone would blame you. If you, you can if you, you can say words, yeah. but you have to mean them too, and yeah. that hasn't happened. Um, I I just like to finish up a little bit uh, on just on Rachel because Rachel was the the life that was taken here in the end of the day, and you mentioned that the media has kept her name alive to a degree. Is that what drives you on? Is that what's important to you? You know, keeping her memory alive. Oh, God, it's oh, huge. Yes. It's huge because you sort of feel she didn't die in vain, like she didn't die and she's gone, she's forgotten. You know, I know we'd never forget her, but I really don't want anybody to ever forget what he done to her. You know, I really don't want, you know, and if they were to tell me he never got out again, I'd be happy. Now, mm. that sounds... That sounds bizarre, but it, it wouldn't worry me if I if I thought he's never going to get out again. He's still breathing, Paul. He still has a life. He can study or do whatever he likes. It's the life he made for himself, but he took Rachel's life. So I wouldn't um I wouldn't start to feel I feel for a, a murder, the very least, if they are found guilty, they should get the very least is 25 years before they can even, you know... Apply for parole. Yeah. Yeah. 25 years minimum. And that's, I don't think that's asking much for taking, especially somebody young, you know, for taking their life 25 years is 
it wouldn't sort of bring them back, but it's better than maybe 12 or 14 years, what you hear them getting out after, and that's bizarre. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, we've actually worked on a story today about a person convicted of murder, you know, an entirely different type of case, uh, but, but released after 13 years which is just it's God love God love that person and another thing that I, I find hard is a murder uh, they commit murder and it's it's called murder and everything but yet when it comes to sentencing they get off with um, manslaughter you know that's just bending the law really what, what Joe done was very well premeditated he put a table of work into it that all came out in the trial it was very much premeditated. So I think someone that can think about more than someone and premeditating it and all is a dangerous person to have around. And I think to be keeping the fella in like that for so many years and feeding them and it's costing a lot of money, they could be giving it to someone that's homeless or to someone that's down and out, you know, that'd be ward keeping. That's my view on it. That's just the logic of it, I think. Well, look, th- thanks for talking to me. I, I, we've covered a lot, um, but I really, really, really appreciate your time. And thank you both for speaking to me. And now it's not easy to ever talk about it, but um, I, I think people are still captivated by the story because they just can't believe that that a, a young woman like Rachel, you know, that her life was taken from her. And I think people remember it, you know, even still people remember it like it was yesterday, you know. Well, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. You can find more episodes of Shattered Lives on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts and Deezer. Thank you for listening.